Can an organization thrive simply by producing great products and solutions at the right price? Our guest today believes that they also need to transform markets in their favor by aligning their capabilities with long-term customer problems. In this way, the perennial challenge of performance versus growth and innovation moves from being an either-or dilemma to a both-and mindset and culture. Hey folks, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. Hey my friend, how are you feeling today? I am feeling a mixture of uh, energy and hope. I've just come back from New York and I feel like I'm a little bit more connected with the world, having not really done much traveling for, like most people, for, for several years. And I'm also feeling uh, quite a high degree of anxiety, given what's happening in our economy. But ever optimistic. Um, so yeah, net out positive. How are you feeling, Scott? Well, I just came back from New York too. We weren't there at the same time, were we? No. I just got back last night. No. Oh, good. Because <laughs> I, I would be offended if you didn't uh, <laughs> let me know. I'm feeling, uh, well, now I'm not feeling offended, but I, I was for a moment. Um, I'm feeling, I'm feeling really positive, actually. Got to do a whole bunch of good work this week and just feeling uh, really rewarded by that and really grateful. And excited to have this conversation uh, with you and our guest today, because today we are joined by William Kilmer. William is an entrepreneur, a venture capital investor, and author who has helped found and invest in dozens of companies around the world over his 25-year career in the technology industry. He is the managing partner of C5 Capital, a specialist venture capital fund investing in cybersecurity, cloud infrastructure, applied data analytics, and space economy companies. He has been founder and CEO of several cybersecurity and data analytics companies, formed a wireless operator in the UK, and has served on the board of over 30 technology companies and other organizations. He's a presenter, a speaker, and the author of the recently released book, Transformative, How to Build a Game-Changing Strategy, Retool Your Organization, and Innovate to Win. William, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thank you. It's great to be here. Williams, how are you feeling today? Uh, you know, I'm actually feeling pretty upbeat. Uh, I love your introduction and the fact that you were you were asking each other how you were doing. Um, I actually just came back, uh, John, from a, a trip to London myself last week. So um, it was nice, likewise, to be out traveling uh, once again and getting the chance to see a bit of the world. Well, that's good to hear. We're all zigzagging in each other's paths. Um, so let, let's start with your backstory. Can you t give us a little bit of the, the, the journey that's got you to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I realized that uh, when Scott was reading the introduction, it's a bit dated. I'm probably more uh, closer to 30 years in the industry now um. rather than 25. But um, I've been a technology entrepreneur and a venture investor uh, my entire career, um, have worked in smaller companies and larger companies as well, started by founding a company uh, early on in my career that was acquired and um, went worked for a large company, Intel Corporation, for a number of years where I learned sort of my leadership style. And, um, and then, you know, after that time, uh, was in the venture industry, uh, founded a couple of startups in the data analytics and cybersecurity space. And 
Um, most recently, uh, just as an update, I actually am now uh, an advisor with a new group called Gallus uh, Technology, which is a UK-based platform focused on both investing in early stage companies as well as uh, co-building um, or what we look at as a foundry model of uh, creating companies that we think have a, an opportunity in the market space where there's a gap. So, hmm. you know, most of my background has really been around technology and, and leadership. What attracted you to that field? And what, what, why I hear the passion and obviously you've got this rich uh, portfolio. What, what's the, what was the starting point for you and, and how did you come to get involved? You know, um, from my perspective, it's hard to find an, an industry where I felt like I could have more impact on, um, you know, on people hmm. and the way that they live. And, you know, from the very beginning, um, early in my career, it was around networking, uh, right at the, you know, sort of after the phase where the internet first uh, started to become commercialized, just this idea that we could connect people together, connect companies, help them to share information. There was just sort of a profound uh, feeling that you're you're positively changing people's lives, mm. and uh, you know I think that's a passion that's that's kept me in it, um, you know, since then. Before we get a little bit into the the deeper um, aspects of your work, can we just talk about innovation and the challenge that poses for most organisations? Because we're 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 constantly hearing this tension between performance and growth, um, and it'd be really interesting to hear about your take on what it means to be successful in leading innovation in organizations how do you how do you actually do it um i know it's a it's a big topic but what are the two or three things that you've recurringly seen that you know create the difference between winning and losing in that field well you know i like to look at innovation as both an, an outcome um which i think the classic definition of you know innovation is that you've developed something that's not just you know new technology or new um you know a new product, but you've actually been able to commercialize it and bring it to market. But it's also a process. And I think, um, you know, as leaders, uh, we have to look at both of those and identify both, you know, what are we creating? Is it something that's unique? Is it beneficial? But also, how do we do it? And, you know, are we, are, are we comfortable with the processes that we have? Or are we continually challenging those? Um, one of the things that I bring up in my book is the fact that we are so focused on innovation today, and it really is the, especially now during digital transform, uh, an era of digital transformation, we're so focused on, um, you know, in, improving innovation and applying technology innovation to almost every sector of the market. Yet, ninety-four percent of executives express disappointment or dissatisfaction in their innovation performance. Mm -hmm. um, no matter what we do, organizations think that they should be doing better. Um, and I think, you know, that has a couple of implications, but one of the major ones to me is that we put so much emphasis on this idea of innovation and how we tie it to a product or features or something, you know, that is new that we sort of lose the perspective of why are we innovating? And hmm. the reality is we're innovating to do something that is interesting, attractive, that will be beneficial or helpful to the people who are going to buy that product hmm. or service. What, what do you think is the origin of that um, blind spot? Um, you know, it's an interesting one because it's one that I've experienced um, throughout my whole career. And in fact, it's, it's a bit of the impetus for the book. But, you know, we've developed over this time uh, something that I call the, uh, well, something that has been noted in the market as the technology effect. And um, that technology effect is sort of 
you know, taken us to this idea that, um, you know, the technology is the determinant as to what our, our is the determinant of our success uh, as an organization. That basically we are going to win or lose based on how good our technology is. And, you know, I'm not sure what the origin is other than, you know, when I look at the innovations that we've seen in the last, let's say, 30 years, you know, we've gone through this era now of the internet phase to, um, you know, web applications or web 2.0, mobile technology. Now we're moving to the cloud. You know, now we're building all of these other technologies that are that are coming into place. And you could just, you know, think about, you know, everything that's coming uh, or that is is you know that is being enabled right now. Things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, virtual reality, and uh, artificial reality, um, uh, robotics, quantum computing. We look at all of those as you know technologies that we need to be able to incorporate or use somehow. And I think because of that, because we base our um, you know our factors of success on that technology and how good it is. We tend to look at that as sort of the end game, and that's this idea that you know again this technology effect that what technology we have, what we have built, is what's going to make us successful. And I think you know if you look at uh, how it's been portrayed in the media, you certainly you know see that from you know everyone from uh, you know Steve Jobs to um, you know you think about founders of Uber like um, uh, you know like. Um, uh, Travis uh, Kalanick and others, that everything is oriented around how great of technology did they actually develop. And, you know, that was really the, 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 the pivot point of success for them. I want to stay with this 94% dissatisfied statistic that execs are, you know, very dissatisfied with their company's innovation performance, because that's really significant. Um, in some of my observations and conversations we've had on the show before, part of the reason I think, you know, innovation doesn't seem to work in a lot of companies is it seems to sit on the side of what the core business is as opposed to being baked into everything the organization does. Are you observing that? Do you think that's a factor in what's going on or is there something entirely different happening? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that the technology, you know, again, is sort of taken center stage. Um, and what hasn't taken center stage is what I highlight in the book, which is a really a refocusing of organizations on what is the customer outcome? What are we trying to provide to mm -hmm. them that is really a value? And maybe how do we change even, you know, what they value? I think about, you know, a, a recent, I think, uh, example in the market, which was, you know, Yahoo and Yahoo's attempt to just sort of bounce back in the market, you know, in the, in the sort of early to mid, you know, 2010s, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, CEO Marissa Mayer came in from Google and, you know, she was really kind of highlighted as going to, as the person who was going to, you know, come in on the, on the, you know, white horse, be the white knight and really change the company. And that's so much of the focus was uh, in that organization at that time. Let's grab all of these pieces of technology and bring them into the company because that's what they're missing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think over that time they spent, you know, about $2 billion acquired some 53 companies and, you know, bought into everything that they needed to have at that time, you know, mobile technology, video, you know, how to do advertising, a social media platform of their own. And, you know, all of it was sort of accumulating this um, this war chest of technology, 
without really putting it together to say, what are we trying to you know, provide to our customers that's really going to change their lives in a significant way and help them? Hmm. What's the difference between innovation and transformation? You know, my experience as both a, a CEO, an investor, a board member for a lot of companies, you know, we've been very, very focused on, you know, we're going to innovate, we're going to create something new, something that's disruptive. And we've had that sort of product orientation. And, you know, the number of times that I've been in board meetings or that I've seen an investor pitch, and it's all been focused on, here's what we're creating that's really interesting, you know, really new. And that's really, you know, what I look at is, is you know, technology development or technology innovation. Um, and, you know, the principle behind transformative really was a, uh, a deep study on some of the most successful companies um, that we've seen over, you know, the last, really the last 50, 60 years, because some of it goes back and incorporates, um, you know, early companies looking at things like uh, Ford Motor Company, for example. And um, it really looks at what were the, uh, the attributors of success that we can pinpoint and identify that that they did that was different, and you know transformation was really this idea that came out of it, which was most of these companies, unlike our present sort of frame of mind, which is that you know companies that are truly successful are the innovators, they're the first to market, mm -hmm. um, you know they're the ones that bring up something that's completely net new. Most of these companies actually went in and addressed problems that already existed in an existing market of some sort. And where they really came into play and became a significant factor, even an industry leader, is because they were able to transform that market. And it triggered first and foremost around that idea of a customer outcome. It was really deriving something new that still had a semblance of what the customer's original need was, was still fulfilling that, but was adding to that experience. And then from there, there, there are cascading effects around, um, you know, building new capabilities in order to fulfill that, that really counter, uh, was, was counter leveraging against the existing in industry uh, or infrastructure and really, um, you know, attempting to change the way that the industry infrastructure uh, exists, really innovating around that just to, to fulfill that capability and creating a mass market. So the result really became... You know, these companies essentially were very, very good at finding new opportunities by changing the customer outcome, building upon that, and then scaling a new market, which ended up taking over, you know, the, the old market. Hmm. And a great example that I often use on this is uh, Netflix. When you think about Netflix 1.0, you know, now 20 years ago, um, was really oriented around, you know, shipping DVDs to people's homes and, you know, giving them something that they could watch with this new technology of DVDs. And, you know, we often think about that as well. That was the blockbuster killer. Um, you know, they essentially came up with a different model and avoided late fees and everything else. And, and the reality is it was much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. um, when Netflix came out, um, in some ways for the first year, they were actually competing head to head against blockbuster, but without stores, even charging on a per movie basis. And then they finally understood what the customer needs were and how they could deliver something completely different. And they switched to this idea of a subscription model and building queues of, of DVDs that people would want to watch. And um, what, what came of it was you were no longer in this sort of frenzy that you wanted to see the latest movie. And you know, so you were heading to your blockbuster. Instead, what Netflix gave you was, was something completely different, which was an on-demand rental 
of a library of 50 or 60,000 DVDs or movies. And so your habits changed, what you consumed changed, you still were fulfilling the same basic need, which was, I want to watch something on a Friday night. But all of a sudden, you had a much different outcome for you, which was you could select from a much vast, uh, more vast library. You had it on demand right in front of you. And you could start consuming content that was much different than maybe you watched when you went to the, you know, the local blockbuster. Mm. So you know, to me, that's really the essence around it is figuring out how do you change that customer outcome in a way that is so significant that it's a, that it's a different benefit for them. And it changes the way that the industry is is structured in order to fulfill that. I kind of miss going to Blockbuster on a Friday night, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's the candy. It was yeah. the candy up front, yeah. right? That yeah, you, could, totally. you could grab on your way totally. out. <laughs> I didn't miss having to take them back, though. That was one of the That's biggest true. source of, of arguments for people and their families. <laughs> um, so, William, if we are thinking about you know, because you, you set this really interesting intersection between you know, sitting on the boards of of organizations trying to do this stuff, investing in it, advising people. Um, you know, let's, let's imagine you're talking to a CEO who is sitting in an organization that isn't really being successful around transformation, isn't being successful around their innovation events, and then is looking at the next several years with this global instability. What what advice would you give that person in, in, in at a very high level uh, in terms of how to frame and look at these challenges differently? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think, you know, what I would normally offer to people is that what is helpful first is to start with sort of setting what I call your worldview or the context of the world that you live in today. And so generally when I meet with a CEO and, you know, they're wanting to look at, you know, where where should we go? Where should we, you know, invest in innovating going forward? I say, well, you know, really take time to sort of build your description of what world you're in today and what you see changing over time. And so, you know, this idea of a worldview is really to just look at what are, you know, what are the factors today that are affecting you as an organization and your customer or your intended customer? And how are those potentially changing over time? And I, you know, I really like this idea of using what's called a pestle analysis and looking at, you know, what are the political economic, social, um, you know, technological, environmental, and legal um, sort of trends that are happening. And, you know, identifying what are the things that, that, you know, may be different in the future and how does that both enable opportunity and how does that change the needs of your customer? And I think once you do that, that allows you to sit down and say, well, where do we fit in all this? What, what are we providing, um, you know, to our customer today and where can we take them going forward? I have an example that I use oftentimes with us with a CEO that I worked with who started to develop this practice around this. You know, and first what she did was sit down with her entire team, uh, with her leadership team, and they basically mapped this out with this open question of, you know, what is the world that we live in today? What's what's our worldview on what's happening? And they all came together, uh, built it over a series of of discussions. And then, you know, they looked at how does that impact the customer that we're going towards and what can we do? That sort of is the third phase to affect that or improve dramatically, you know, their their benefits or where can we take them? And then the last piece of it was really looking at 
what do we need to be as a company in order to be able to best fulfill that? What are the things that we have to focus on? What capabilities we need? But starting with that, that first view of, you know, of, of what the worldview is really helps to level set everybody. So you have a common understanding, common background. And in fact, um, this CEO in particular would take those, uh, those concepts, those four concepts, and she developed them into a set of slides that she would use all the time. So when she met with her management team, when she met with her board, she would remind them, these are the things that we've set. Here are the trends that we see that are happening that you know, we think are affecting us and our customers. Therefore, this is what you know, where we want to take them. And here's what we need as a company to change, to become uh, what capabilities we need in order to be able to best serve them. And it was sort of putting that out there every time to say, you know, this is a reminder, but it's it's going to change over time. And, you know, you're welcome to challenge, you know, these assumptions that we're making. But I think just that process gets somebody towards this idea that they can deliver something that is better for their customers, um, something that's differentiated because it's providing them with a, with a different outcome, um, you know, based on what their changing needs are. And in your experience, what kind of um, resistance does that create within senior leaders what do they need to overcome to embrace that approach i i think the number one thing is just inertia it's it's really sort of you know you have two loops as an organization one is you know how do you continue to do what you're doing better and you know the other is how do you innovate and create something new and the inertia of that you know that first factor uh that just sort of keeps you dropped into you know we need to keep our heads down and focus on doing what we're doing um, better is is really the biggest thing. So, you know, a lot of that comes back to, um, you know, building the right organization, the right culture that can be reflective, that, you know, can take on these challenges that is actively curious and really building something that that is is different. And I'll give you just one data point, uh, you know, around this. One of the things that was really interesting to me as I started to put together this book, Transformative, is um, I started to look into the backgrounds of all of the founders of these different companies. What was amazing to me was that 73%, so nearly three quarters of, of those who founded these organizations were what we would classically consider to be industry outsiders. They had no background in the market. They knew nothing about it, no experience whatsoever. And you know the, the, that factor sort of applied to or co- contrasted to today you know, where we look at ourselves as, as organizational leaders, you know, we try very much to sort of keep the norm, uh, you know, or normative practices inside of our organizations mm-hmm. by hiring and promoting and incentivizing insiders. So, you know, when we hire, we want to see industry experience. Um, when we promote, we want to promote, you know, or when we want new leaders, we want to promote from within with people who already understand what we're doing and just try to keep doing that better. When, you know, the reality is most change that really happens comes from people having an outsider's perspective. Mm. One of the one of the many things that I found really interesting um, in what you talk about was this idea of a confidence bubble where you talk about how enthusiasm around technological innovation often produces less innovative outcomes. Can you tell us about a confidence bubble that happens? What is that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think the confidence bubble really happens in, in several different factors. One is this idea, you know, that we talked about of the, the technology effect, right? That we really focus in, um, you know, on technology as being sort of the, the prime 
indicators to whether or not we're going to be successful. And that really drives, um, you know, that really drives our focus around, you know, utilizing technology. Um, and we become very, very confident in it. Um, one of the statistics that I, that I have in the, um, in the book, and I'm trying to remember the exact numbers right now, but there was a survey that was done, um, you know, not too long ago by Gartner, uh, of, um, of CEOs asking them, you know, what do you think of yourselves? How would you rate yourself in terms of innovation? And interestingly enough, I think it was 41% of CEOs uh, saw themselves as what they would call innovation pioneers. Mm. You know, they were at the cutting edge of what they were doing. Another 37% found themselves to be or identified themselves to be fast followers, right? Those who quickly see that there's a you know, technology innovation that's happening and then they adopt it. And, you know, the result is that leaves like 22% of people that are, you know, sort of laggards um, in the market. And it's like, we, we can't all be innovation pioneers. We can't all be fast followers. And there must be some, you know, th there's a disconnect there, I think, with what we perceive we're doing versus, you know, what we're actually doing in terms of, you know, real innovation. And I think what, what that blindness does, what that sort of self-confidence does around we're innovators is, you know, number one, that sort of causes us to not step back and try to reimagine, you know, new customer outcomes mm -hmm. or better customer outcomes. We think more about what else can we do with our product? Our product's kind of already there. It's baked. You know, we've got a few more features we can put into it, but we really, you know, aren't going to do much more because we're focused on that rather than, than customer outcomes. The second is this, this area you know, that I call the innovation paradox. And that is because we're all rushing so quickly to, um, you know, to do innovation, um, particularly nowadays as we're starting to incorporate, you know, some key elements in of, uh, you know, machine learning and AI, um, you know, really looking at data analytics, cloud, you know, starting to develop software more in the cloud. And, and um, you know, what's happening is, we're sort of at this level where we're all like every company is wanting to do it. So we're all relying on the same consultants, the same strategy consultants, the same, mm. you know, uh, system integrators, the same software repositories like GitHub. We're kind of borrowing code from the same sources. So while we think we're being super innovative, we're actually having to dip into sort of the same well in order to get our innovation technology up and running. And I think that sort of puts us in a paradox where yeah. everybody's sort of limited because we're all trying to, to do it. Um, and I think that's a, you know, that's a really big one. Um, and I think the other is sort of the self-limitation that we fail to kind of look outside of the uh, technology innovation itself as a way to, to innovate. And um, I'll just give a, a brief example. And I spend a significant amount of my time in the cybersecurity industry. I work with startup companies um, with, you know, larger enterprises and others that are buying cybersecurity because it's an area that I, I've invested in for the last 15 years. And we did a study um, uh, late last year, in December of last year, and we talked to a lot of what we call our chief information security officers. They're the main buyers of security and, you know, and sort of the large enterprises. And we asked them, you know, what do you want that's that's not out there today? What is interesting? And what was really interesting was so many of them came back to say, you know, we're not that concerned about the technology. You know, technology is good and we're getting, you know, new innovative ways to stop these cyber attacks from happening. What we need are sort of new models. We keep getting technology thrown at us 
And we need new ways to pay for it. We need new ways to manage it. Mm. We need people to manage it for us because there's a the technology or there's a, a talent gap that's out there. And so there are all these different ways that companies could be thinking about how do we innovate to give our customers a better outcome? But instead, what we're thinking is how do we build new software and just you know throw more software to them so that right. they can use it? And so there's a real disconnect there between what you know innovators are building and what consumers are really wanting to buy. Mm. I think that's really interesting in that you know, when we when we're working with uh, with organisations on this front, they you're right. There is a uh, almost maniacal focus on the technology, what they don't have in terms of skills and partners and so on. And actually, what's within their grasp a lot of the time is that they have the ability to imagine, reimagine, and generate new business models, which don't require a lot of those things. They might require different partners, different financing um, uh, sources, and so on, but why do you think that there isn't that that kind of primary business model innovation going on at the same level as the technology? My uh, standard answer for this is that it's just hard. Mm. Um, innovating business models, I think, is difficult. And yet, um, you know, when you look, especially when it's a challenge to what the organization is already doing or, you know, how they make money. Um, and so I think that's one of the bigger issues out there is that it's a it's a potential risk to their you know, the way that they do business. But, you know, you look at where things have progressed, for example, in the software industry for the last, you know, 10 or 12 years, really starting with, you know, when uh, when Salesforce first came out with their product um, and Mark Benioff, you know, started the company, it was really orienting around this idea that, you know, you were no longer going to pay for a license for software and then pay for, you know, maintenance if you're a large company. Um, instead, you're going to buy a subscription to it. And it was one of the biggest revolutions in software. It lowered the barriers of entry. It made the, you know, the market much more vast because people could buy, you know, a product at a lower, uh, a lower price that, you know, they would continually pay rather than a big upfront uh, cost. And we've sort of been on that model for, you know, at least the last 15 years now um, for most of our software. And that's been a huge innovation. But, you know, everybody's now in that and they're really focused on it and it's hard to break out of that. Mm. And again, you know, there are, there are lots of, for example, software models where it would be more beneficial if you paid somebody to run that software for them. But because it's different, um, I think it concerns people to not, you know, move into that space. Um, but, you know, if you look at the flip side of it, most great innovation that we've seen today I think is always accompanied by a much different business model. Whether you go back to somebody as, you know, sort of uh, old school tech as or old school as you know somebody like Walmart who really focused on technology innovation and you know logistics in order to lower their costs and therefore be able to lower their prices, to you know companies like Apple who you know sell hardware, but so much of what they do today is actually making money off of. Uh, services side in terms of, you know, the media that they um, that they sell, cloud services, etc. Um, almost every great innovation is has really learned how to tie those two together of some sort of technology innovation or product innovation and business model innovation. So Scott and I love sitting in on pitches and watching, you know, startup teams, scale ups, and corporate accelerators. Um, pitching it's like uh, magic sometimes and it's it can be very frustrating as well what, what's the last time you saw something that really you know made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up in terms of uh, a new opportunity you thought yeah that that could be transformative 
Oh boy. I, you know, honestly, I think in terms of the potential, I see it, I feel like I see it almost every day. Um, you know, I just sat on a, on a pitch this morning, which, uh, I hope the CEO isn't on, so he doesn't know how exciting, uh, you know, I found it, but just that they identified a challenge that is coming up in the market that they are going to intersect that is, you know, both cost saving, um, as well as providing more insight. The combination of those two, I think, was was really exciting. Again, I think where things oftentimes, you know, fall down is when somebody says, "Okay, you know, I've I've done this. That's really interesting." And now I'm just going to fall back into the model that everybody else has used in terms of every other uh, part of my business. And you know, that's maybe the disappointing, you know, point. I had a company that. Um, you know, a couple of years ago now came with a really interesting and exciting product, what they were doing. It was so much better than, you know, what the existing market looked like. And, um, you know, while the market was a bit on the mature, more mature side, they had something that was really unique. And then when I asked them about, you know, what is, what does it look like? How are you taking this to market? How are you, you know, helping your customers to adopt this? What's the business model? It was sort of like the CEO just said, you know, like I've, I've seen the playbook out there. I know what everybody else is doing. I'm just going to do what they're doing and I have a better product. And no matter how much I could, you know, talk to him about, you've got to really look at these, you know, other aspects of how are you going to transform the market? How are you going to shift things so that, you know, your product is more interesting and that buyers start looking at the criteria of what you're providing as what they need? And how are you going to do that in a way that sort of prevents everybody else from just copying what you're doing? Um, kind of just you know wasn't willing to look at it because he had such confidence in in where he was going, and I think that's you know the inhibitor that goes back to that you know technology effect that we talked about earlier that everything is won or lost as as you know based on how good our product is versus everyone else's. And is there a, a, is there any emerging technologies that you think are underrepresented in terms of tension that things that we might be missing here? Is there is there stuff out there that's going to um, suddenly shoot into prominence that's in that um, deceptive phase at the moment that you're seeing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think we're very much at a time where, you know, there are a lot of t- catalysts out there in terms of new technology that is going to, that are going to impact us. Um, I mentioned some of them earlier, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I think many companies are just starting to figure out how to incorporate that. Um, you know, robotics, I think quantum computing, I think that, you know, there are two that, you know, I really look at and I'm, I'm pretty excited about, you know, one is this idea about virtual reality and, uh, an augmented reality. And, you know, I think what we tend to think about today is that, um, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, that's all about metaverse or nothing. And, you know, we look at particularly with, uh, you know, with where meta formerly known as Facebook is today. And we sort of say, well, look, you know, meta, you know, metaverse isn't happening. And therefore, you know, these technologies aren't really, um, you know, working or effective. And what I see as an undercurrent is that this idea of, you know, virtual reality and probably even more so augmented reality is going to sort of creep into, um, you know, everyday aspects of our lives that will be, I think, really effective. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but, you know, I think about augmented reality and if you could use that, well, first of all, we're seeing it already today in some businesses. It's being used in training, um, for example, that I think is very helpful in business and government. Um, you know, think about augmented reality and how you might use that even around your home or, 
you know, when you're in different locations to have some sort of an overlay that is not the metaverse. It's not something that you have to go and, and be immersed into, but can enhance the world that's around us. I think that's an underrated um, underrated capability, probably an underexploited one. Um, the other one, which I think is interesting, and this is probably just because I'm, I'm a bit of a space nerd, um, but you know, I look at all the things that are happening in the space industry right now, and I think we sort of set our mind around um, you know, space is all about exploration. It's about going to different different places, and you know, going to the moon, going to Mars, etc. And the reality is, is that so much is happening in space right now. Is is sort of the the space industry gets revitalized, which is really focused around um, augmenting what we're doing here on Earth. That I think it's going to be an exciting area. Um, in fact, I I wrote something just recently about how every company should be thinking about space today and having some sort of a a strategy around it and thinking in particular when we're in space and we go from, you know, I think right now there's, there's, uh, there's something like 5,000 different, um, you know, uh, satellites that are orbiting the earth. That's going to go to something like 28,000 in the next few mm. years. Um, what does that look like when we have better access to sensors, when we have better photographic information, we have AI that can, that can help to discern that and make better decisions. I mean, that's going to help so many different areas um, and so many different businesses to be able to enhance what they're providing to customers that I think it's a really interesting area. You don't have to be a space company, but how can you use the data, the analytics, um, the information that's coming from, you know, from that industry to enhance your business? And I think that will be one that 15 years from now, people will be surprised to say, wow, our, our lives are much better or they've been enhanced because of what we've been able to see or learn um, you know, or coordinate from space. Hmm. It's really interesting. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you have evolved as a leader? You know how you have developed and grown as an individual so rather than the the stuff that you know uh, intellectually how how have you grown emotionally and um in terms of self-knowledge um over the years what are the kind of key milestones for you that you know, got you to the place you are today yeah you know i would say one of the things that um has been really significant for me again in especially in writing this book was this perception about you know, the outsiders and how the outsiders really change things while insiders, um, you know, essentially reinforce. And, you know, so I always say, if you want predictable success, then act like an insider. If you want, you know, transformative sort of, uh, you know, orders of magnitude, better success, you know, you have to think like an, an outsider. And, um, you know, while it sounds, um, you know, it sounds maybe a bit discouraging that most of the real innovators have been outsiders. Um, what I really take a lot of uh, a solace in, or I think a lot of encouragement in, is this idea that you know, 27% of those that built these transformative companies were outsiders, but 20, or sorry, 73% were, but you know, 27%, uh, you know, were insiders. And I look at what they did and who they were, and I think that impacts um, you know me and how I think of things. And so. You know, if I look at those individuals, what you see is pretty common set of characteristics that that I think have impacted me. They're highly curious um, individuals. 
they tend to be good students of their industry and their market and their you know they have sort of a, a a framework which they have built but also they're willing to challenge that often and you know and deeply and they encourage their team to do so as well and you know and they also you know they've spent time outside of their industry they have a broader network where they you know work with individuals that can help sort of enlighten them and so it really comes down to you know, this idea of, you know, it's important to be curious. It's important to be able to challenge your own beliefs. It's important to have a sense of diversity and inclusion. And, you know, those are words that, you know, I think are are hot buttons today. But the reality is, is I've looked at, you know, companies and I've looked at, um, you know, where they have been successful uh, or the companies that have been um, uh, successful at implementing, you know, programs around diversity and inclusion. They are more successful. Mm-hmm. They are companies that you know have been proven by research uh, do better. They're more innovative. Mm-hmm. They are financially more successful, and so you know just this idea of opening up to broader opinions, being willing to challenge your own ideas, being curious, those have really been, I think, you know, guiding factors in my own uh, my own leadership style over the last few years. Are these the types of organizations you would describe as challenge setting organizations? They are absolutely. You know, and I appreciate you you bringing that up, Scott. You know, one of the things that I cover in the book in particular is this idea. This is my last chapter is the idea that people can set, uh, you know, they can create inside of their own organization, what I call a challenge setting, you know, organization. This idea that, you know, if they set their beliefs, if they create this worldview, that is the platform for them to be able to then challenge it mm-hmm. and to constantly be looking at, you know, how, how, uh, how do what or does what we believe actually change? And how is that impacting our organization? And really being willing to even challenge your own biases and be willing to adjust your worldview. And then once you've gotten there and you've oriented yourself around that, um, what are the you know three to five challenges that you have in front of you that you just absolutely need to go focus on and act on? And you know how do you adjust for that? So uh, one of the one of the quotes I use in the book is uh, from one of my you know personal heroes, uh, Andy Grove, who was the former CEO of of Intel Corporation, and he talks about uh, you know the art of management is really in looking at all of the different things that you could be doing that comparatively look equal, and out of that finding the two or three or four things that will have the biggest impact for the effort that you're putting in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, the essence of really being a challenge setting organization is saying what's most important out of all these things that we need to focus on um, in order to be able to address today's or future challenges. And yet so many leaders, not only do they not challenge themselves or their ideas or the ways of working, but they spend far too much time, time defending it, right? They, they want to defend what they've built as opposed to challenging. What's the, What's the mindset required um, for somebody who may be prone to defending ideas as opposed to challenging their own ideas? What, what, what has to happen there? What's the, what's the right mindset? You know, in my opinion, I think you have to have a modicum of, of humility, mm. right? And curiosity that you regularly inject in, into things and a, an ability to change mm-hmm. um, and adapt. So a lot of that really just comes down to being curious, being observant, recognizing that um, you know you should be challenging your own thoughts 
And, you know, there's so much going against us, right? I mean, we filter information today. Um, we tend to, you know, lean towards confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have an anchoring, sort of an anchoring cognitive bias that, you know, the first information comes in is the information that's right. And so it really just takes that humility and that willingness to step back and, and challenge ourselves that I think gets us there. Yeah, I love it. John and I preach curiosity all the time. So thank you for sharing that. So if... Um we fast forward to three years, something like that. And I'm not asking you to make predictions, but I'm asking you to kind of think about positive imaginative scenarios that organizations could be holding up and going, you know, could this be a possibility for us? What are the kind of things that we should be looking at in terms of combining new technologies and business models to solve some of these big challenges facing organizations? What are the kind of things that, that um, you know, you, you can inspire us with to think about? Uh, so, John, you know that I'm, I'm hesitant to, mm. to predict the future. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's, there's probably three things that I've looked at that um, are good indicators based off of history as to, you know, where we can apply a lot of this to. And that is, you know, as we come back to that idea of, you know, changing the, the customer outcome, you know, changing what it is, the benefits that they are accruing in a way that changes their criteria. I always look at three things. And I think that, you know, if you think about, um, you know, some of the technologies that are available, you think about some of the maybe forcing functions about what's happening in the market today. I and mean, we're seeing great societal changes. I think we're, you know, coming into new generations that are, a bit different. I mean, I'm a I'm a Gen Xer, and you know, I've had different priorities and values than you know what I see my kids have. For example, um, changes in economics. You know, I think we've you know changed uh, you know not only a view of you know the economies themselves, but you know a sense of ownership or what you know should be owned. And you know, I think all of those things are you know definitely having an impact. But I come back to three things that that people can focus on that I think if they can apply whatever it is that they're you know that they're doing apply these to that, it would be helpful. And that is one, this is a sense of, you know, how do we create something that is better uh, for our customers? You know, one is this idea that, you know, we're always looking to increase convenience, um, you know, for our end consumers, for our customers. How do we make things easier, um, you know, for them overall? Uh, Two is, you know, this idea of reducing friction. Um, You know, I think that is in the world that we live in today, the ability to reduce friction, to be able to take out that, you know, that factor that is driving inertia between them and a product and, you know, always be looking at as the next, you know, wave, how do we make this available to more people um, and reduce that, you know, whatever that barrier is. And then the third is this idea, I think, especially today of, you know, and I know this is a, a bit trite, but this idea of mass personalization, the explosion of data that we have today there's all sorts of warnings I could give as a cybersecurity, you know, professional about that. But this idea that the more that we know about, you know, what individuals' needs are, the faster we're able to compute that with, with you know, quantum computing, with artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, the better we are able to provide something that is specific to somebody's needs. That may be, you know, even in the world that we're living in today, uh, you know, figuring out how to curate, uh, you know, content in a positive way. Um, you know, I think those ideas of, you know, increasing convenience, reducing friction and, and personalization, they're going to continue to carry us a long way in terms of, you know, how we improve things for uh, for customers, how we become more transformative as, a, as organizations. 
with our time left, what haven't we asked you that we should be asking you? Um, you know, I think from my perspective, it, it really comes down to, you know, how do we implement some of these principles? And, um, you know, one of the things that is really a, a significant portion of, of my book in particular, a, a third of it, the third section of the book is really focused around, you know, what I call retooling your organization for success. And it's just this idea that, um, you know, you need to bring your team along. You need to be able to incorporate the power of the organization that you have. And that, you know, really starts with this idea of first, you know, defining a path towards differentiation, um, you know, putting yourself in a perspective where you've given a vision to your organization and you've also enabled them to be part of that and to contribute. Um, the second part is this idea that, you know, you want to build a culture that supports and sustains your strategy and in fact supports the adaptation of your strategy over time. And then that third element that we talked about, which is building a, a challenge setting organization. From my perspective, the most difficult thing that leaders, uh, the, the, the most difficult challenge that leaders have is how they translate the vision of what they're doing in a way that enables people, that invites inclusion and contribution to that, and that enables your organization to recognize um, you know, when change is needed. And so those elements of really, you know, defining that path and that intention of where you're going, having the right culture in place, and then, you know, continually coming back and reinspecting it and making adjustments, you know, is, is sort of that critical element on the ground that helps leaders understand how to implement, you know, what they're, they're trying to do. Brilliant. William, thank you for, for taking time today and, uh, we are b better for it. So thank you for your insights. Thank you, William. Been really interesting. Thank you both. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And folks, before you do anything else today, make sure you get online and order your copy of Transformative by William Kilmer. And until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs>